You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1, O-U-T-D-O-O-R, and the number one. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for being here. Before we get started on today's episode, I want you guys to do me a favor. Head on over to Instagram and give us a follow at MyLifeOutdoors. That's M-I-LifeOutdoors. Um, yeah, if you could follow us on social and remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and or Spotify, that's where you can find us. And to keep this thing alive and going, if you can do us a favor on iTunes, leave us a five-star um, review and uh, or a five-star rating. And if you want to leave us a review down below, that would be great. And that'd help us out big time. But anyways, on today's episode, I am joined by Nick Otto of the Hunnivore podcast. And Nick is a... A man who loves to cook and prep wild game in a variety of different ways. And he joins the podcast today to tell us all about turkeys. We go in depth about, you know, how to prepare your turkey, how to butcher your turkey, how to preserve the meat, how to smoke it, what to add into your brine, how long to brine it for, cook it for, etc. Uh, it's just a deep dive. And I thought it'd be a good time to do this because... Um, well, this past weekend in Michigan, it was turkey opener. Uh, we talk a little bit about um, whether or not we were successful in our opening days. Uh, we compare stories of past opening days of turkey um, turkey opener. And uh, yeah, it's just a good BS session. And I learned a ton from Nick on this podcast, and I hope you do too. So without any further ado, here is Nick Otto from the Hunnivore Podcast. Uh, enjoy. Nick, what's up, man? Hey, living the dream, Lee. Living oh, the dream. That's what you I want to hear. Yes. We, we've had a little adventure here through all four seasons. Uh, you're, a, you're a Michigan native as well, and here we are on the Michigan podcast, so I think everybody can, can, can say that they've experienced that. Saturday, we were in the 80s. My son got his entire body. He was running around just shorts, and here we are, wonderful parents, not paying attention. That kid is ro- lobster red. we he's he falls asleep on the couch because we you know we've just been going yeah be going like i go to scoop him up and i can just feel heat radiating off him oh boy down and i'm like oh buddy i get dad of the year right now we had zero sunscreen on him next morning he wakes up sunday we're getting sunday clothes on he's like i'm itchy like yes i bet you are that's that's totally dad's fault dude well in michigan man like i don't you live downstate right like yeah yeah yeah. rapids yeah yeah yeah. so i mean think about our spring that we've had it has been 
cold. I mean, at least over here in Southeast Michigan, it's been cold, very extremely windy. Um, I would say average rainfall, but just extremely cold, a lot of ups and downs. So we're like this late in the April and we just got our first day, like, you know, above 75 degrees. We're going to get a little bit wild and forget to put sunscreen on. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, we did, we woke up that morning and it was, I mean, we hit the ground running. And we were, we actually did a little stint down in Grand Rapids, me and the wife, and there was a birthday. So it was like a little bit of bar hopping. We're sitting on patios and it was like, is summer here? It's like, is this what it's going to be? Little did we know. I mean, I guess we knew it was coming. Here we are two days later and they're already talking flurries possible. Oh yeah. Forties, which, you know, we're going to, we're going to get that. We love our warm weather, weather. We love our beautiful days because we don't get that in In Michigan. Nope. So we appreciate what we get. Uh, so don't feel so bad. So Saturday we went out in the boat fishing and we were on uh, the big water like Erie here. And, you know, we were the same thing. It was, it was such a good time. One, it was warm. Uh, but when we got there, the water temperature is like 47, 48 degrees. So it's a little bit chillier out there. So we bundle up a little bit, but anyways, we're catching a lot of fish. We're having a great time. The girls are out there. Uh, the wife's out there. I didn't reel in a fish all day long. It was just all them reeling in fish. So they were having a blast. Well, lo and behold, we get off the water the next day and I'm like, we're sitting, I'm sitting drinking coffee and, uh, you know, the kids wake up and come out in the morning and I'm like, oh no, their faces are a little pink. And I like, I feel my face and my neck. I'm beet red. <laughs> so, oh, man. so they got a little pink. I got beat red. My wife was totally fine. She like, she tans like a pro, but, uh, yeah. So I feel your pain. Um, we all got a little bit of vitamin D, which was, I don't, you know, we, much needed right after a long winter like that. So I'm happy. I'm happy. We got a little bit of color now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it just wakes us up to, to changing things out. Um, the other thing too, uh, I know it's not necessarily, uh, skincare at this point. Well, it, it can be. We had thorough skin checks uh, last night. Uh, ticks are out everywhere. And I yeah. tell you, they are raging right now. We pulled five off of one dog. We pulled four off another. I had one on me. Uh, we had one in the hairline of one of the kids. And so now it's like everybody's radars are up. It's just constantly, anytime you feel like it may be a little stick tight, but at the same time, like, Oh, get it out of there, get it out of there, dig it out. And, uh, man, that's, that's been another thing too, that we've been spring just brings on. Yeah. The sudden 80 degree weather and ticks for days. Well, when I think of ticks too, I always, you know, I always remembered like the first time I get them crawling on me or I start checking myself is, which is a good segue into this podcast is Turkey hunting. Right. So like when I'm out in the woods and I'm, I'm hunting, I, it's like, it's always like the first time where I'm like, okay, I'm back in my hunting clothes. I need to check myself for ticks as we come back in. And, uh, yeah, the other day, uh, Saturday opening day here in, in Michigan, um, I just sitting there, you know, passing time, uh, sure shit. One corals right across my knee on my pants. I'm like, yep, it's that time of year again. <laughs> so, uh, makes sense. But yeah, so on this podcast episode, we're going to talk a little bit about turkey hunting um more so of uh you know we're gonna i'm gonna kind of tee you up here but for everyone listening uh, you've been on the podcast before but just give everyone like a recap of what hunt war podcast is all about and it'll make more sense as we segue into turkey hunting and what we're going to talk about absolutely so i'm nick otto and i'm host of the hunt War podcast and my whole Oh, to boil me down is I want to celebrate hunting and fishing 
through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. Um, that is the culmination. It's you, you've brought in your quarry, you've brought in your limit, and now it begins the celebration part of being able to uh, butcher it down with friends, package it up, share it, and cook it up so that you can then enjoy it. And that's been a, a real passion of mine uh, to be able to do is to share that aspect of the wild harvest. So teeing it up again, like, yeah, like people getting their birds and get real excited. Like I'm excited for guys to come in and then try something new. I know two guys here in Michigan that have already bagged their opening day birds. Um, Adam Miller off of the bow hunters Chronicle. He bagged his opening day, Tom. So congratulations to him and shout out to James on the fair chase podcast. He also had an opening day turkey. So I feel like I'm in the, I'm seeing a lot of guys put birds down, which I think is going to make this opener real exciting. Yeah. And you teed me up to say I did not get my bird yet. So that's oh, perfect. I'm, sorry, <laughs> I'm just Lee. kidding. <laughs> no, that's all good. Uh, I'm just messing with you, dude. Uh, but uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, it's cool. I, this is what I really like about your podcast. It's like, Yes, hunting is a part of it, but I think a big reason afterwards where a lot of people, um, if they've ever wondered like why we hunt or fish or why we're so passionate about it, a lot of the times the best way to portray that to them if they don't do that is through the meal prep and the presentation and the way we serve our wild game to people because that can go you know one of two ways i mean some folks that can prepare it in the wrong way or if they don't handle the meat correctly or they just don't put maybe that little extra effort into it it can turn somebody off uh to wild game whatever that might be turkey deer elk you know even fish from the freshwater um but you know if if you take listen to Nick's podcast and the, and like the passion that he has. And, uh, you know, a lot of your tips and recipes, especially on Instagram that you share, I think a lot of people can serve, um, a lot more tastier wild game to people who might be curious or just trying it for the first time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Uh, those kind words, Lee, it's, it's something that we have a precious gift here and we've got the opportunity to go and, and harvest our own food, harvest our own protein, which time after time is is being attacked left and right. And as much as we want to say that hunting is a right, uh, a God-given right to us, there's going to come those moments where people are not going to be happy. And they're going to twist it. And they're going to try to villainize what we're doing, that we're out there just to just to shoot things and leave them out there. And that is completely false. It's completely not the truth. And so through my Instagram, through my podcast, being able to share like this is people's livelihoods and the guests that I have on, they, they feel the same way that this is how I live. I don't get my meat from the store. I go out and acquire my meat. I know the weight and energy that went into producing that animal Heck, I watched it all season, and now when I take that, I hold that that weight of life, and you know, damned if I not do anything with it, damned if I leave it out there to rot or to not take advantage of every bit of that animal, just to be able to 
say that I did my due diligence. We're not rolling in and getting a pound of burger from, you know, at that point, it could have been from four different steers into, into one burger. But at the same time, we know exactly what we're putting in on our plates. Yep. I don't, I don't want to bash domestic either. That's where I grew up. That's where I got my start. And there's an absolute place for domestic meat. And small farmers are still producing amazing beef, quality pork. I mean, we're always going to need the bacon to wrap up our backstraps. So being able to find these small little farms that make incredible pork or even to find poultry that's that's local or poultry that uh, we know has been raised correctly, there's always a place for that. But rather than to just play the, the blinder game and be like, oh, eating meat is bad and it's not sustainable and switched, you know, switch over to something that's the trendy new uh, the trendy new diet, why don't we just take full ownership of what we eat? Um, I know I know I probably don't eat always the best qual- or calorie wise because I, I ingest far more calories than I should. <laughs> but <laughs> we all do. Time, <laughs> but at the same time, like the food that I put for on my on the plates for my friends and family, like I know they get more than just food. They get more than just energy. They get my heart and soul that I acquired that animal. And at the same time, the energy and love that I put into that dish now goes off to them. Yeah. Well, I think in today's society and just like, you know, it's something that's what we've always done. Me growing up, we've, I mean, we've always hunted our entire lives, but, um, I think a lot, a lot more people obviously are thinking about more of along the lines of like, how did this get on my plate? Where did it come from? Right. Regardless if they hunt or not. So if they're buying stuff from the store, they're more conscious about how that animal was raised or where it was raised. They're trying to buy local. Are they paying more? Yeah. But I think that now that we are more aware, um, of the benefits that come with it, um, you know, I think a lot of people are just putting a lot more time and thought into their purchases when it comes to the grocery store. Absolutely. And money's tight right now. Everything costs way more so what i get i'm i'm gonna want quality that i'm going to pay more for the quality that i want which means things that are not as quality i'm i'm gonna have to let slip by i'm i don't have that uh i guess i need to be more frugal with that and in those choices like i want to go quality when it comes to the protein that i put on my plate and that's where being able to down three does or you know get a buck and two does whatever that is three or four deer in the freezer like that takes a huge load off of not only the family's budget but at the same time that fills those freezers that we don't have to then tap into the budget later in the year so i mean honey we don't need to talk about the money that i spent on arrows yeah (laughs) that that does not count Think of that as gas to the grocery store. That's all it is. It's a necessity. We got to have it in order for it to, you know, to get to our plate. So don't worry about it. Um, Yeah. So I'll recap my opening day real quick. Um, My opening day of turkey season consisted of, well, let me me rewind a little bit. Last year, 
I had a great turkey season. Kind of like the stories that you just mentioned, I limited out in the first half hour of my turkey season. It was awesome. Um, and you know, my, then at the time, my six-year-old daughter wanted to go with me and I tried to wake her up, but she could not wake up, you know, for whatever reason, she's super tired. Just didn't take it very like seriously. I'm like, okay, so she's not getting up. I'm going to go out hunting anyway. So I went out hunting last year and shot a turkey. Dude, when I walked up with the turkey, she instantly tears in her eyes. So upset that she with herself, that she did not wake up and come out turkey hunting with me. Cause I got a turkey and you know, it was one of those things where like, yeah, I felt bad for her, but it was a really good learning lesson for her because it's like the importance of getting up and like, you know, having to put in the work, like you just, you're going to miss out on things if you can't, you know, be disciplined enough to wake up all that kind of stuff. I mean, I wasn't hard on her or anything, but this year, needless to say, um, we were all planning for opening day, you know, last week we went out, put up our, you know, our pop-up line and kind of like got our spot ready, had it all picked out. She was with me. She was all jazzed about it. And she was like, you know what? you know, dad, you have, you have coffee to wake you up. I I think I need something like that to wake me up in the morning. And I'm like, well, we know you don't like coffee, but what, what would wake you up in the morning? She's like, I think ice cream. So the night before we went to the local uh, dairy farmer down the road, they make their own, um, ice cream. And we got, uh, you know, a gallon of vanilla ice cream, her favorite, got it all ready to go. Needless to say, you know, Saturday morning, wake up, she pops out of bed, like a daisy gets right up like doesn't skip a beat goes out there and she's like you know what i don't think i need the ice cream she was running purely off of adrenaline i obviously still had my coffee but needless to say we made it out to woods on time and she was and i was totally stoked that she was like just running off of that that pure adrenaline that i remember having as a kid and like getting out of bed and like that's what it was all about so it was pretty cool that's epic that's epic yeah well i'm so sorry that she that she couldn't experience getting the bird but oh hey that's on yeah, it's Murphy. He will <laughs> do what you want right away, and then yeah, all of a sudden a little bit of uh, swagger gets in your step, and oh, it's it's going to be a done deal, and boom, yeah, nothing. Yeah, Nothing's gonna it, it, you know we stayed out there for two hours. She lasted two hours, which I thought was pretty good, and uh, we came back in, and then you know, lo and behold, I was going outside to get ready to do some lawn work, and it was like this time is like nine forty-five, something like that. I see the turkeys walking out in the field right into the woods. I'm like, shit, I'm not going to tell her that. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, so needless to say, I didn't get a bird. But, you know, I remember last year when I got my turkey, and this is kind of like, you know, a great reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast because I think you can shed a lot of light. But, you know, it was my first turkey that I ever got. I'm just getting into turkey hunting. It was a lot of fun. It was a blast. Um, I've duck hunted my entire life. And, you know, a lot of times with ducks, you just kind of breast them out. And, um, you know, you can put them in stir fries and stuff like that. It cooks up like a red meat duck, duck does. But when I had this wild turkey, um, you know, I did the same thing. I breasted it out. I saved the drumsticks and things like that for the legs. But I found myself, like, after taking care of the meat and, and freezing it, like what I was going to do with it because you get online and a lot of people go down a path of, you know, wild turkey's hard to cook. Uh, it dries out. It doesn't taste that great. Just smoke it, turn it into jerky and all this other kind of stuff. I'm not saying that, you know, you can't do that or 
if that's the way you like to eat your wild turkey, just turn it into jerky. But I thought I wanted to get more creative with it. And I thought to have you on the podcast with your experience, you can shed up, you know, shed the light to, to what experience you have with just turkey in general, but share some recipes or some ways or some different thinking outside the box for people to realize what they can do with that wild turkey. If they do get one or they got one this past weekend. Yeah. Bird and poultry, upland bird, even waterfowl, like they present a whole new challenge that most traditional hunters, especially coming from the deer woods, they're going to have those feelings of it's, you know, it's tough. It's hard to get to it. It's smaller in nature. And at the same time, it's a completely different makeup than say red meat. So the whole idea of like, well, I'll just cook it uh, rare. That that's not a good idea, especially for for bird meat, for poultry. Right. You want to be able to cook it all the way through. So there's going to have to be a unique approach to something that's feathered rather than something that has fur on it. And a lot of times that's that's difficult to do. Um, just stuff that gets passed on down. Um, you know, be it time, be it lack of knowledge, the excuses that roll out of there. Ah, it's tough. Don't worry about it. Like we won't worry about the legs on that waterfowl when in actuality, that's a, that's a beautiful part of that bird that you're, you're missing out on. And well, I'll just open up here and I'll just, I'll just skin it out and pull out the breasts. Yeah, you can do that. But what you've done is really pigeonholed yourself. You've really taken your game plan or your opportunities and cut them in half at that point, because now you're only limited to making schnitzel. You're only limited to breading something or, you know, giving it a quick sear. You've lost the aspect of moisture retention. You're now going to have to figure out what you're going to do to keep this moist because you've taken away one of the uh, guardians of that meat and that be it the skin. Okay. So when it comes to uh, a turkey, yeah, it's a, it's a big bird, uh, much bigger than a grouse, much bigger than than waterfowl, I mean, a little bit bigger than a, a Canadian goose. But at the same time, even these bigger birds, um, plucking them is going to be a thing that you're going to be able to give yourself the best advantage. Is it going to take a little time? Yes. But plucking this bird is going to make things easy on you, especially once you take it to the freezer. Because if you happen to have... Uh, a deep freezer and you have a, a seal break or something that skin acts as a moisture protection or a, a um, freezer burn protection rather that skin get a little nipped from that freezer burn than the actual meat you can always pull that skin off but now leaving it on it gives you protection for something you may not come see down the road. And not just that. We'll get into more of why uh, plucking and keeping the skin on is, is good. Um, but as I was preparing for this, I thought about um, Hank Shaw, and he has a beautiful article, and it's on his Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. And so I actually went back to that tonight. Um, when I went and got some pheasants with a friend, um, I had read out there that you want to age these birds. Now, aging for... Uh, upland birds is a little bit different than deer, especially in the way of uh, time. Um, 50, 50 degrees in a controlled environment, like say a, a garage fridge or you know 
be it here, be it right here hanging in your garage because it's going to be 40s here uh, right. for the next couple of days. <laughs> hanging those birds by the neck. Uh, the smaller the bird, you don't need to inviscerate it. But what that's going to do is that's going to allow um, flavor develop. It's going to let the, the flavor develop inside the um, the muscles. At the same time, just like hanging a deer, uh, hanging a deer up for a couple of days, it's going to let those enzymes work and let those muscles relax. Especially on the other side of rigor mortis, you're going to want to let everything relax a little bit more. And now it comes to the idea too that you got to get these feathers off. And the skin is going to be real tight, especially for that first day. Um, so I actually did a little little homework and went back to uh, Hank Shaw's article. So look that up on Hunter, Angler, Gardner, Cook if you really want to check my sources on that. And what Hank is saying is inviscerate the bird. And that means uh, take out everything on the inside. So you're, you're going to go through the full gut on this. Um, I go with a horizontal cut above the coagula, which is the basically the anus yep. and then from that point i can get my hand inside the bird to push back uh the intestines push back the gizzard now i can let my white my uh my knife go all the way around that coagula and then i can pull everything out at that point that's a way for heat to escape if i've shot into the gizzard if i've shot into any of the intestines it's a great opportunity for me to pull all that out give it a real good rinse with some cold water and then let that bird hang for, uh, Hank says three to seven, uh, depending on the age of the bird. So older going seven. I doubt many guys are going to go that length. In fact, I might not even go that length. I think I'm going to get itchy right around that three to four days is when I'm going to say like, okay, now it's time. Yeah. But you're going to find that the plucking process at that point is going to go much nicer. That whole skin has relaxed a little bit. It's going to take you 15 to 20 minutes. There's no way around it. You have thousands of feathers that you now have to pull off like two or three at a time. On the, the breast side of it, so if he's belly up, you can pull a few more. That's a real thick uh, skin there. That's not going to tear as much. But as you work up towards the wings, things are going to get a little thinner as far as skin goes, especially on that back. And you want to really have a good wrist flick when it comes to pulling all those feathers off. So taking your extra time, you know, set it down. You're watching something on TV and just kind of go with a, a quick wrist flick. Grab three or four feathers at a time. The big ones off the tail. It might be worthwhile just to cut the tail off, especially if it's a tom. You're going to be wanting that fan anyway. So that would be an opportunity to cut that off. When you get out to the wings, um, the first two sections of the wing, the wing is made up of essentially three sections. You have your your drum, which is closest in. That's like your the bicep area. And then you've got your uh, mid, which is the forearm, essentially. That's where the two boats, that's where we usually think of uh, chicken wings as we think of the mid section. Okay. And then you have the tip out the end. Um, and that... Uh, culinarily that that holds some value to it especially going into stock but if you don't want to mess with having to pull out some of the toughest flight feathers that you have just cut that right at the joint um and then save yourself the extra work of being able to pull out those flight feathers but nothing like some needle nose or channel locks to grab a hold of those flight feathers and just give them a quick yank and pull those out that's going to save you uh 
a lot when it comes to flavor. And like I said, uh, going into the freezer, uh, being able to protect the the moisture that you have within that bird because that's going to be a real thing that we're going to want to control. Thick white meat is definitely going to be drier, especially if you overdo it, especially at the aspect that we want to have this bird to get up or that meat to get up to 160. Um, that's the way that it's cooked. That's the way you're going to want to have it. You don't want to play too much with that temperature range. Um, so if you're going to want to go for the cooking that whole breast, moisture is going to be a, a big key in what we're doing and having that skin on is going to help. Okay. Uh, my question is now that, okay, so we've got the feathers off. We've have it plucked. Um, you know, obviously it's been hanging for three days from there. Obviously, what do you, what do you typically do? I've, I mean, if you breast it out, leave the skin on, um, have you ever heard of folks just taking the whole bird as it is if they wanted to cook it like that and, and, and preserving it in the freezer that way, or is it better just to kind of from there, cut it up into the cuts that you want to prepare? Um, this is going to be, cause now we're into the butchering aspect and this is going to bring up your whole list cut list of like, what are my plans for this bird right to for guys that are saying i'm saving this for thanksgiving like i got my thanksgiving turkey i'm not going out in the fall season this is what i want to do with it being able to find a big enough vac bag uh and cinch that down suck that down throw that in the freezer absolutely that would be something that you could do with that i've also seen guys and this actually works out really well I like to do on the domestic side of it is if I've got a big, you know, 25 pound hen or, you know, 28 pound Tom, it's going to, it's going to take up a lot of room and I don't necessarily need 28 pounds right then and there. I might need 14 because I might want to try and do something on the, the grill for summertime. But yeah, I'm going to want to save something also for, for Thanksgiving. So being able to cut that right down the middle is an absolutely great way to do that because now you're saving essentially white meat and dark meat for whatever you're trying to to set that off for. So you could even just split your bird right down the middle, right down the backbone and through the keel bone, find where your two breast lobes separate. And now you've got two different uh, sections that you can save one use one immediately um then you can get to the point where maybe i'm i'm going to want to do stuff on the smoker i'm going to want to piece things out and that's where then you could then part this out into quarters and i find that's a great way to then eventually freeze things because from quarters you can get your smaller cuts or you can then have those for bigger bigger parties or whatnot um you're having to get together with friends you want to make uh something out of the dark meat it's nice to keep that leg quarter where it's the thigh and the drumstick connected because you only have to use one bag but at the same time it's big enough for a larger group of people rather than to take the time and cut it all up into certain joints now you've just made more things to rummage around um when it comes to when it comes to venison i guess that's a bigger animal i like to keep things as whole muscle groups just because it's helpful for me to wrap my mind around that organizational wise I can pull out a bottom round and have not have three different ideas for it at this point. All right. I can, you know, if I need steak, I can pull that out and I can make steak. If I need it a whole roast, well, then I can do that as a whole roast. If I'm now making pastrami, 
I've got it as a whole piece that I can do that. And the same thing with with turkey. Rather than cut my white meat steaks, rather than cut those out and then seal those as steaks, I've now, again, pigeonholed. I've now left my options as that can only now be steak as opposed to keeping it as a whole breast. Now it at least opens up my options for what I want to do with that. So I like to keep them as whole muscle groups. So when I cut off a breast, yep. I will cut off that whole lobe, making sure that I get my knife all along those ribs, all along that keel bone, because I want to get every morsel off that carcass. On the inside of that uh, breast lobe happens to be even something that's really treasured, and that's the cutlet or the what I refer to as the tenderloin at that point. And you can literally peel that out with your finger. The one end has a real thick tendon. Um, forget where it attached to. I think it attaches up on, onto the wing at that point. But anyway, you can quickly cut that tendon out and you've got a nice, beautiful piece of white meat that can pretty much go any direction you want to as a marinade or as a brine. It's very versatile at that point. So those two things can come off. And then um, making sure that when you cut out, you start up, uh, I'm trying to think where how I was going to do this, Descri- showing you with my hands. That's what I'm trying to do. And I'm now I'm trying to describe it. So I'm going to basically splay those drumsticks and right where that webbing of skin is between the body and where I'm pulling off the drum and the thigh, yep. I'll run my blade through that skin and I'm going to then see where I can seam that out, right? You're going to see where that dark meat is going to be coming away from that turkey or or away from that uh, middle carcass. And I'm going to work my knife in to just get to that ball joint. Once I've gotten to that ball joint, take the extra time, roll that turkey over, and then run your blade around as much of that dark meat as possible. You're going to see it you're going to see it flex up in there as if you're like flexing the muscle when you splay it open. But again, you want to pull off as much of that dark meat as possible so that you're leaving it on the quarter, that you're not leaving it on the carcass. Gotcha. And just uh, back up a little bit. So when you do take off the breast, are you leaving that skin on it still so that, to still freeze it that way? Or at that point, the skin has preserved it and you're going to take it off? Or do you leave it on it when you freeze it? I leave it on when I freeze it. Gotcha. I, it, that's where it's going to be doing the, the benefit of it being on there. Because right now, I have not disturbed that connective tissue right. from the, the meat and the skin. So it creates that layer yep. that is going to hold it together. It's airtight. Nothing's going to happen to that. Um, and in fact, if I'm wanting to make sure that I have moisture, the skin is where birds hold their fat. So whether it's an upland bird, whether it is waterfowl, whether it's a turkey, they hold their, all their fat uh, in that layer of skin. That inner layer of skin is where they hold that fat. It doesn't necessarily marble like what um, red bean is going to do. They hold it all on the outside. It's an insulator. Um, so that's what the bird wants. It's an insulator and a protector all at the same time. So that's where they hold that, that fat so that when I go to cook it or I go to smoke it or whatever vessel I'm going with, that whatever fat is now underneath that skin, that is going to render into and glaze over the top of what I'm trying to cook. So it's that breast meat, that's going to, it's almost going to be a self-basting, quote unquote, of being able to provide some of that fat, some of that moisture back. I see 
some of these celebrity chefs that they'll take a domestic bird and they're like, we want to get butter up underneath there. And so they take their hand and they jam their hand between that and then they shove a bunch of butter up in there. Mm-hmm. And it it just makes me angry <laughs> to see that. But <laughs> why is that? I'm sure. I'm sure it tastes I mean, butter, you can't go wrong with it. It's it's absolutely good to be able to get um, herb and salt and seasoning on as much of that white meat as possible. But when I, you're just breaking that barrier, you put a bunch of stuff in there, and the first thing it's going to do is it's going to flow out. So you've now totally dripped all that fat onto the inside carcass of the bird. It's going to render onto the outside, and I just I see what they're trying to do. That's not the way to that's for the cameras, man. That's, they're they're popping the seal there. You don't want to do that. Exactly, exactly. I, you know what? There's some French chef someplace who's going to get a hold of this, and he's rolling <laughs> over. You know what? I'll go toe to toe with him, but until he proves me wrong, I think you better not disturb that connection. Well, and it's tough sometimes that you got to think. I think a lot of people realize listening to this. I mean, th- these wild turkeys aren't going to prepare. Th- I mean, for the most part, they, they look similar and the, the meats of cut are a little bit, you know, very similar, but you know, when it comes to actually cooking the bird, they're not sitting in just in the cage the whole time getting fat. So these wild turkeys are going to be a lot leaner to begin with. So I can see why that would upset you breaking that seal. You're just really basically, you know, working against yourself and working against time then. So. Exactly. Exactly. But then at the same time, there are a hundred different methods that we can use to get the same effect without having to necessarily break that barrier. Right. Um, And this is, I mean, essentially too, if I wanted to crown the bird and cut just the breast lobes off together, leaving both both lobes connected on the keel bone, that's a wonderful way to roast just the white meat for people who, who love white meat. But at the same time, that's super deep. There is a huge thick layer these are the muscles that the, the, the birds use to fly. I I guess I use fly very uh, gingerly. Loosely. Falling style. Yeah. <laughs> falling with grace. But it, they're huge, powerful muscles, and they're super deep. So when we want to in, add in, when we want to add in additional flavor, I think the best way is rather than to shove it between that that gap, is to, and this is even if you're going to uh, smoke it, roast it, whatever you're trying to do, is to inject that large breast. You've got a real thick end. It's almost like a baby uh, brisket at that point. You almost have a, um, a point and a flat that you, that's sitting in front of you. So to bring in flavor through an injector or even through a brine, the inject the injecting the brine is just going to help you speed that up. It's going to take less time if you're injecting it. You're basically going to spend less time in the brine um, to fully get that solution throughout the bird. Um, so when I'm I got a big one of those big old syringes and I make up my brine. Could be super simple. You could go super fancy with it. You could add a bunch of herbs. You could add a bunch of citrus and make up this really flavorful brine take a couple huge drags inside that syringe and just fill that breast up 
plop the breast into the brine for a little while longer because now you've worked it on the inside. It's now going to come from the outside in, and you're going to be able to distribute a bunch of that seasoning throughout, especially the salt. I guess that's the big main character there when it comes to brining. Um, Alton Brown had a very, uh, very good layman's way of explaining what was going on. And by adding salt or sodium in through diffusion, it's working its way through all, all the cell membranes. It's essentially trying to balance the level of water and salt in its two environments. But by doing that, it ends up locking water into the cells using the salt. There's a process that it, that it goes through. Um, unfortunately, I don't have my high school science book here to, to look that up. It's kind of like osmosis, but uh, it's like if anybody listening for your biology, it's like your sodium potassium pump is within human cells. So, yeah, I get what you're saying. There it is. Yes. Um, so it's working through that osmosis to then basically diffuse that salt throughout and you've locked moisture into that. So yep. now when you go to a high heat situation, you're not going to lose moisture as quickly. Right. Now, if you are not careful of what you're doing, you can absolutely dry that out. But by using a brine or even using a marinade, you can take your window of overdone and stretch it wide. So you're giving yourself a wider window of moist you're giving yourself a chance to be able to pull it off at the exact right moment. You're just helping yourself out at that point. What? Okay. So now that we're into like the cooking aspect of it, what is a simple brine that you recommend for, for Turkey? Like, I, I know you said you can get really complicated with it and you can go really simple with it. Like, do you have a recipe off the top of your head? That's like a tried and true brine. It's going to seal. It's going to allow that moisture to kind of get into the meat, but it's also going to seal the outside of it for it to, you know, retain that throughout the entire cooking process. Yeah. I use, I use this one when I'm brining for like a roast Turkey or even Turkey that's going to go into the deep fryer. Yeah. Um, huge disclaimer on this. Yes, I do brine my deep fried turkeys, but I pull it out of the brine and that sucker's going to sit and it's going to air dry. And I am going to pat as much moisture that is exposed off of that bird because any little bit of moisture that you are going to then <laughs> expose to super hot heated oil, that sucker is going to go up in steam right away. Yeah. And that's where you can get your flare ups. So always thaw out your turkey all the way. So if you're doing a wild turkey and you're going to end up deep frying it, always thaw it out completely. Dry that sucker out inside, outside. Dry it again. And then use <laughs> use a big long pole to be able to drop it into that oil on the first time because flare-ups are no joke. Uh, <laughs> I've never fried a turkey. You've never fried a turkey? Never oh, deep fried a turkey in my life. For a domestic bird... Well, I would say for one of those super cheap birds you get from some big box store, I'm not going to name any names, but those can handle a nice deep fry. It actually brings those things to life. Um, you get you get a, a bird that, even let's say you want to use your wild turkey, it's a, it's a great way to be able to put a quick cook on a large animal uh, for a large group of people because now you essentially have cut your cooking time in half mm -hmm. but at the same time you're still going to have some beautiful uh beautiful moist meat that you're going to be able to do something with um 
the dark meat, it's it's going to be a little more tough, uh, especially if you go with a, a whole deep fried turkey. But at the same time, I mean, what's what's better than gnawing on a piece of dark meat, especially after it's been the deep fryer? I can't think of anything better. Right. Yeah. Add a little salt to it. Drink a beer. You'll be fine. Exactly. Um, but a simple brine. This is one that you, you put some weights together. So I'm going to use a gallon of water as my first uh, unit in this. So for every gallon of water that I'm going to brine my turkey in, it's going to need three cups of some sort of agent that's going to work on that brine. And I say agent because um, a basic, basic recipe would be three cups of salt to one gallon of water. That's a lot of saltiness that will translate into a very mild tasting animal like a turkey. And so what I end up doing is I'll do a cup and a half of salt and a cup and a half of brown sugar. Okay. And what I'm doing is I'm still working on I'm st- both the brown sugar and the salt are going to hold that moisture inside of that bird. But at the same time, I'm cutting down on the saltiness. So then when I get my ratio, I take my five-gallon bucket that I'm going to uh, be my brine bucket. I think that's one thing that everybody should have is a clean, food-safe five-gallon bucket that they just write brine on the side. Because you can use that for birds. You can use that for venison. You can use it for whatever. Spray it out and use it again. Um, so I put my bird into that five-gallon bucket. And then I turn on the water spigot, whether it's the tap water or whatever I'm trying to to figure out at this point and I get my level where I'm now over top the bird that the bird is now fully submerged I can then pull the bird out and I'm left with an accurate amount of brine so I'm not making too little I'm not making too much I've got the right amount of water that I need for that bird Michael, I then take that oh, go ahead sorry I get, just to interrupt you real quick and I apologize is it, does it matter what kind of salt that you brine it in because some people say like get kosher salt you, you some people say you can just use table salt i mean is there a certain kind of salt that you use as you're doing this yes i use kosher salt kosher salt um, okay i'm trying to think of her name she has a netflix special it's called oh shoot i'm already i'm already blanking on it don't worry about it but she does a whole amazing tutorial on the different types of salt. You never thought there was so many different types of salt and how they, how they work differently when it comes to, when it comes to taste. Um, Well, I remember reading about, I remember reading about that and I was like, like not all salt is like the same. So that's why I asked the question. It's like, if you're just to go in there and, you know, dump three cups of, you know, table salt on there that might taste totally different than using like the kosher salt so that's why i kind of wanted to get it specific there so that way people know like what kind to get but yeah continue yeah so you've got like you got your like your iodine salt and your pickling salt um pickling you would use for naturally pickling or whatever you're doing for like canning or something like that both of those are going to have a way more intense uh salt flavor and so if I were to use three cups of table salt in this brine, it would blow you away. You would immediately need <laughs> like several, several cups of water per bite. Yeah. I mean, it, it would just be really, really intense. 
but at the same time, the kosher reacts differently. It does not have a punch-in-the-face salt taste. Now, it's going to provide the – it's a bigger crystal on there, but at the same time, it's going to provide a much milder salt flavor. Um, I find that I use kosher salt almost all the time when it comes to cooking, as if I'm going to put it on the meat uh, mm-hmm. as I'm going to cook or if I'm going to put it – in water to bring up the salinity of it that I, you know, I'm boiling pasta or whatever and I need, I need to throw a bunch of salt in there. But then I'll end up finishing salt. The stuff that I actually leave on my table is not table salt, but I'll use a sea salt because the way it's created, that's a flatter flake and it will dissolve on that. You know, now I've grilled my piece of meat and somebody wishes to have more salt to flake on the sea salt is going to dissolve that quicker and you're going to have not basically a crunch like you would from uh, pretzel salt or like a big piece of kosher salt, but you're going to have that salty flavor with the crust of the meat as opposed to uh, basically gnawing on mineral at that point. So it is funny how different shaped pieces of salt will end up working in on pieces of meat at different points. <clears throat> yeah, I think it's important to point out. I mean, think about it this way too. If anybody's listening to this, if you do any kind of like uh, rubs on like smoking meat and stuff like that, I would just stick with the same salt that you're using for that for to go with your brine for your turkey. Absolutely. And nothing to say too, that if you've got a favorite dry brine, essentially a brine is you're just creating your dry brine into a wet brine at this point. Measure out your three cups, dump it in, and now you've got those same flavors that you're putting into uh into your brine at that one point. Um, I The second part of this is once you get your water level is you then going to take that to a pot. You do want to warm it up just for the fact that you're going to dissolve it. So you're going to be able to get all those in there. There's sometimes where I can't wait. I just, I want to get this in the, in the bird now. And so then I just end up having to stir vigorously, like just sit there and whip it. And that's going to help dissolve the salt and the sugar into the waters evenly um if i don't have time to bring it up to like a boil i know you read instructions where it's like bring it up to a boil or bubbles or simmer dump it all in mix it up you do have to let it cool back down you don't want to start cooking your bird so you do have to let that temperature come down um people will then add ice into it it does change the the ratio of water but not a not a tough not enough that you think you're going to notice but at that point, I'm then going to let that brine cool down or get that just dissolved out by vigorously whisking, drop my bird in. And I'm going to say, if I'm doing a whole bird, it's going to be between a day to two days in that brine. Just let that go to work. Um, if you have the opportunity, like I said, with that syringe to be able to stick it into the breast meat, shoot that brine in there just to help speed that process up for you. But that is going to be a huge help in when you try to then cook it. If if it's just a breast, let's say they're not doing the whole bird, would you still recommend like a day or so? Yeah, I would say overnight. Overnight. Just like I would with like a a piece of venison or something like that. We want to let that brine go to work. It's going to need the time to do that. So yeah, letting it go overnight, 8, 10, 12 hours, and that's going to be a good setup there. 
Um, you could let it go longer. I mean, there's a point where diffusion's going to then stop because everything's equal. But at the same time, you're in a salt solution, so you're not going to get bacteria growth. So as long as you're keeping it nice and chilled, either in the fridge or, or wherever it's keeping cool, you could let it go for a while. I'm thinking overnight would be just good enough. Gotcha. Okay, so then... Um what do you do from there? I mean, so we got a brine and we're going to smoke it now. Uh, obviously we want to get that temperature to that bird up between like 160, 165. Um, well, 160, because I think I read somewhere when you pull it off, it still continues to cook for a little bit, but absolutely walk us through that. Like if you have a smoker, let's just say something simple, like a Traeger, right? A lot of people have Traegers now or any kind of like pellet grill or smoker. How long are we smoking that, that breast for? And, um, yeah uh, like what's your what's your tips on that um you're gonna want to keep start low on your heat and then work your heat up to where you can then finish it so the longer that you can get your smoke onto the bird or the piece of meat is going to be helpful for adhering that um I know I've, I've done it a couple times where I've, I got a little electric smoker. Um, it's one of the ones that look like a, a dorm fridge. Yep. Um, I actually really like it. It does a really good job. I, I let that temperature get away from me, and I, I set it too high. And so I did – I basically cooked the meat in a shorter period of time, which was like, yeah, but I did not get the punch of smoke that I wanted from it um, for, for a couple reasons. Number one – is that um, you got to create a pedicle on the outside. I believe I'm using the right term, but for my smoke to stick, for any smoke to stick to a piece of meat, it first has to get a tacky surface. Like it's got to have something to adhere to. So when I'm putting that, that bird or I'm putting that uh, piece of meat into my smoker, say a tragger, I'm going to want to start it as low as my tragger will go. If it can go 160, 170, right down in that like warming stage, that's a great time that I'm going to be able to take whatever moisture is on the outside, have that evaporate enough to where there's a tackiness. And even as I as that, that wicking happens, protein is going to be br- be drawn out and to replace where that moisture was and that's where you're going to really get that tacky film and that's what your smoke is going to stick to so start low at 164 as long as you can really handle it at that point i'm saying probably an hour just to get that there and then you can really focus on your your smoke choice at that point right um i talked to uh a couple uh, pitmasters and they've got they have a real blend with their woods that they really like and you know I, I was just asking them a lot of questions and i said how can you tell the difference between you know a, an apple wood and a hickory and the the gentleman told me he goes you won't notice a difference unless you do this every day for years and years and years like it's that subtle like almost like a sommelier with wine they can taste the different grape and whatever wine that they're sipping you're not going to necessarily be able to distinguish the exact wood that you're putting out but you will be able to tell the difference between like a fruit wood or like an oak or a mesquite like something with 
ton of punch. I would not use either oak or mesquite on poultry or upland birds just for the fact that it provides such a tang. Like, that's what you need to put on a brisket. That's what you need to put on uh, a pork butt. That's not something you want to put on this more delicate white meat at that point. So sticking with a hickory or a fruit wood, if you're an apple or a pecan type person, like that would be a great wood choice for you to use on that. And don't don't be afraid to, you know, put the wood chips on there and let it let it smoke. Get you the color that you're looking for. You want that bronzy. Uh, golden appearance. I mean, you eat just as much with your eyes as you do your your taste and your smell. So making it look the way that you want. I would tell you, though, at this stage, too, because we haven't gone to the full cook yet, that maybe be a shade or two shades lighter than what you want your finished product to look like. Because if you take it to the finished color that you're looking for, especially when you're adding the smoke, yeah. you might end up with something far more tangy with the smoke and something far more dark than what we were expecting. So after that hour of just getting that pedicle, I'm thinking maybe 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes of really uh, focused on getting that that smoke onto that, that bird. Then I would crank it up to 220 or 250 and that be your finish at that point, making sure you got your probe, internal probe, uh, fixated in the fat part of that meat. And when that sucker reaches, yeah, like you said, one, oh, 150 to 155, I would say that would be a beautiful point where I can then pull that pr- the probe out, have that uh, go onto the counter, and then just let it rest for the next 30 minutes. Don't touch it. Don't foil it. Just just let it sit there and let it rest. And I think you'll be very happy with the result that you get. Yeah. When he pulls it out less than, like, if you look up, like, what to serve poultry at, it's going to say 160, right? Or 165, I think it is. That bird continues to cook when you pull it off and let it rest. And it's like all those juices and everything like that are also going to stay and seal within the bird at that point as well. So, like, I remember, this is many years ago, but... I remember someone's dad, I forget which one of my buddy's dad was cooking. And it's like, when he pulled it off, he would like cut into it and look to see if it was done. Like back then I didn't know any better, but now I think about it. Like nowadays it's like, wow, you're just ruining everything. If you keep cutting to look to see into it and if it's done or not. Um, That's the piece that goes to the grill master. So if (laughs) I'm going to cut a piece like that, I've already deemed it. That is, that is my, that is going to me because I don't want to serve that to anybody else. I, I do, you know, if you don't have your thermometer, if you don't have any way cutting into a steak, if it's your steak and checking it, absolutely. If it's, if it's someone you're serving it to, well, Hey, you know, slap your hand for that. That's not, that's not, (laughs) that's not a good way to do things. I think you're just Um, trying to be safe to make sure it was, you know, it was done, but like you go through all that smoking process and like trying to seal it all in that flavor. And if you're like, you're cutting into it to see if it's done, you know, get yourself a probe basically is what I'm getting to. Just make sure you got yourself a meat probe It's worth it. And you don't have to cut into it and ruin all that flavor. Um, to go on what you're saying too is that uh, especially when it, like when you're, you're talking about sealing in the flavor, yeah. Um, people refer to like look at when you sear a steak hard on both sides, and they assume that you're sealing in that flavor, and that's that's not the case at all. 
Um, you do you are adding flavor. You are using that Maillard effect, but moisture can travel through that. It's you're not creating a layer that it cannot escape out of. Um, but what you see is before you let that rest, you've just subjected that piece of meat, even back to turkey, you've subjected this to a long process of heat and the muscle fiber is reacting and some is drying out and it, that moisture has to go someplace. So it's moving to different parts of that breast or that steak. And so what you're doing is you put that on, on your counter or on a, on a drying rack and you just let it sit there. You're allowing moisture to then diffuse back through that whole steak or that whole breast. So it's equaling again, equal equilibrium. It's equaling itself back out. If you then cut, like uh, your buddy's dad there, what he's doing is he's cutting. He's going to find one part that's really dry, but at the same time, then he's going to find himself cutting into a part that's really saturated, and that's where you get that bleed out right. that everybody sees. Once you get it to the plate, you cut it, and then it bleeds out all over the plate, and it, you know, just your presentation is lost at that point. So by letting that moisture work itself back through, letting that work back through the steak or back through the breast you've equalized that out you don't get that bleed out but you get beautiful uniform moist turkey um okay so then one last thing what do you like to do with the legs the drums like are you a guy that roasts those and then peels it off into that stringy kind of like you know darker meat or what what do you do with the legs i man if I can, it's almost like a, like a great transition to shanks. Shanks are one of my favorite things off of venison just because of, you know, work is absolutely translated into flavor in that point. And same thing for the legs and the thighs. Like the reason it's dark is because of all the work that goes into moving that bird around. As much as they can fly, they would much rather outrun their, uh, their predators at that point. So, what I'm doing with those legs, which are full of sinews, don't don't get me wrong. It's a it's a tough tough piece of meat if you don't have the right tools to uncrack it, and that's where you're going to get into some of these moist cooking applications. Uh, I mean, you know, smoking uh, a leg that you've brined out and allowing it a long period of time to cook is going to relax that out, and you can shred off that beautiful dark meat and have smoked. Um, smoked drumstick you can eat it like a neanderthal i just posted a picture on my instagram of we had actually they're they're domestic but we've we've pumped them up and i was able to smoke those and pull them out and i we served them up to friends of ours and had a great time doing that and i had a few left over and i immediately took a fork and just shredded those up and that's my lunch for this week is pulled smoked turkey fat or turkey legs and it didn't take me more than a couple minutes to do just to be able to work out those sinews. Yeah, um, I, I know people like will shred it and make it into like, uh, like you said, like shredded meat or, you know, almost like a pulled pork kind of thing or like tacos, all that kind of stuff. You can do a lot of wild or, you know, cool stuff with the drum. Absolutely. Um, then you get to the thigh and what's beautiful about the thigh is there's only the one bone that's in there. They got the femur bone. And so you can cook with the femur bone in you can cook with the femur bone out. If you're really talented with a knife, you can bone that out. Um, but at the same time, to use a braise 
on a thigh or if you are into someone who's really getting into being in the kitchen i picked up a well actually i got it for christmas i got one of those sous vide wands now it's the the little wand that you can stick into whatever pot that you have and whatever stock pot you got and then you can basically have your water circulator that way it's not the one with the big tub oh yeah cover but this one i attached literally to the side of my stock pot and i sealed up uh, a beautiful looking turkey thigh and threw in some some herbs actually i used uh sage and nope nope take that back rosemary and thyme okay rosemary and thyme butter salt pepper and i just coated that all over the place I then took in a good glug of olive oil. I essentially wanted to do what's referred to as a confit in French cooking. Oh, damn. You're getting fancy. Oh, man. But here's the thing. It's a fancy word, but it's stupid simple when it comes to using this little piece of equipment. Because now I'm – confit is basically cooking in its own fat, you know, if you translate it real roughly. And so by pouring a bunch of fat in there being, A, the olive oil – I seal that bag up, and I actually let that leg go for 36 hours at 155 degrees. Damn. Yes. I know the 160. We just talked about that. There's a whole article on – actually, I think it was a study, more than just an article, on the amount of time and – or the amount of heat and duration works as much as higher temperature. Okay. So – you could cook something at a lower temperature for a longer duration and still be sick. I'm sure I'm giving you totally 20,000 feet fly over on that. Read it before you start saying, well, Nick said <laughs> you don't have to do, I don't have to get it up to a certain temperature. No, I would definitely get it up to a temperature. So anyway, I did this at 155. I was within the ballpark, but I let that go for 36 hours. Oh my God. And I actually had to go back and I was pouring more water in because the evaporation that was sure. going on and it, it did it just lived on our stove it, here's what really made me mad about the whole thing is i only did one thigh i should have done two or three because when i opened the bag up it did have a gray appearance but oh my goodness it was i mean the the aroma that came out of this was just incredible i put it on a baking sheet threw it in a super hot it was 450-degree oven. I turned the convection on because I wanted to get as much of that outside as crispy as possible. And I let that go for like five minutes. I mean, it's been cooked for 36 hours. I don't have to cook it anymore. I'm just toasting the outside. Pulled that thing out, and you could – I didn't need a knife. You just could cut it with a fork. And I cut that in half, and I put half on my plate. And I slowly, hesitantly, really wished I would have put the other half on my plate, but I put that on my wife's plate, and we shared that beautiful thigh. And it was one of those things like how many thighs get thrown in the smoker or you know, they're, they get ground up, which at the same time, ground turkey is a great way to use that if you're getting multiple birds or if you're trying to figure out something to do with your your bird grinding it up as a is, you know and making patties or doing a meatloaf i absolutely love ground turkey but at the same time like the just the duration of it being cooked and then having all that connective tissue not even be a deal all the collagen is just ribbony velvety and you could just you, you almost slurped it up as opposed to have to chew on it and it just makes me never want to have anybody throw dark meat away again i wonder if an air fryer would work at the end too 
You oh, think, absolutely. As a, as a finish? Yeah, just yeah. like like you said, like you threw it in the oven. Like everyone's got an air fryer nowadays. Like just throw it in there and throw that crispy layer on it. Like you said, just for like five minutes and then pull it off and good to go. Yep. Dude, man, that's and a hot tip right there. That, that'd that be like a, that'd be worth the sous vide alone. Just buying the sous vide just for something like that. It would. I did a plunge too because Lee, I know there's a lot of people that don't have sous vide and they don't want to spend money on sous vide. And so I, I went the redneck route and I was like, listen, where, what can I do to get a sous vide machine that wasn't actually a sous vide machine? Something that I already have. And the first thing I thought of was a crock pot. Anyway, there is about 15 articles and there's an instructable, there is the instructions on how to hack an analog uh, crock pot. So if you have one that you literally plug and turn a dial, you can use, you can add in one of the temperature thermostats that you would actually plug the crock pot into this device. Yep, yep. Then the thermometer gets dropped in. And when it's below the temperature, it kicks on when it's above the temperature, it kicks off. You could hack your analog, uh, crock pot to become a sous vide machine. You could do this in your crock pot uh, or just get a sous vide machine. They're now actually pretty cheap. <laughs> so you can get one for 85 bucks. Yeah. Cause at first those things were so damn expensive. Cause it's like the hottest fat is like the new Instapot or whatever that came out. Everyone was cooking with the sous vide, but you can go out there and get them on now for, for a lot cheaper than what the, what they initially launched with. Absolutely. And I was hesitant to get one just because I felt like it was a one trick pony. Yeah. That it really was like, cause all you ever hear about it was like, Oh, I can make amazing steak or right. oh, I can, I can cook a backstrap. And yep. you know what, if you cook enough backstrap, you don't, you don't need to have a sous vide or, you know, if you just pay attention a little bit to your steak, you don't, you don't necessarily need it. And so that's where I was like, I got to broaden this horizon here. And so making some soft boil eggs in that thing, I've seen a custard recipe that I really want to get into to do like these little uh, ramekins of custard that you can make up real, real good. So it's like to take that and have that like finishing as dinner's going on. So I have dessert, like just waiting, like that would be really something that I was like, okay, I think it's worth the the purchase this time. And then I got it as a gift anyway. So then I was like, okay, good. So now I got to explore more reasons to use this, but doing like dark meat for a super long period of time. I tell you, that's a, that's a winning recipe right there. Dude. And I'm, I'm happy that like, obviously your podcast, but just people like you exist because yeah, the information is out there on the internet, but like never would I ever find a recipe or I don't think it would come across to be like, Hey, you can sue me turkey thighs. Like I would never have thought of that. So, I mean, just that little tidbit at the end of this podcast of, you know, if, if, if people still listening for at this point, like that right there would be worth, uh, you know, listening to the Huntivore podcast and things like that. Nick is full of like little tips and tricks and like underground shit like that, that you would normally never find out anywhere else, even on Google, but like listening to a podcast. Now someone listening to this is going to go out and do that. And that's what I love about your podcast and your passion for, for cooking, man. So I want to thank you for your time. We're at an hour and 10 minutes, almost talking about turkeys and, and cooking and everything else. But, um, folks listening to this, where can they see more or hear more about, uh, Nick in the, the hunting war podcast? Well, I'm currently hanging out on pretty much most of the socials here. I, I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram. Instagram is probably, I would say, my biggest home. Um, 
and there I'm I'm always posting what I'm doing at that point. So I uh, there are things that really work out really good, and there's stuff that doesn't work out really good. And so I try to paint paint a picture of what I'm doing. Um, something gets excited for me from from somebody else that I'm watching, so I try to to mimic that. Uh, whether it goes from domestic to uh, to wild game, but yeah, checking me out at at Huntivore. Uh, that's where you're going to find me on, on Instagram. Um, I'm also like, yeah, like, uh, like the Michigan podcast here. I'm also on sportsman's empire. So you can head over to our website. You got my whole directory there and I've got a few recipes up there. I actually have my, uh, smoked turkey brine and, uh, yeah, smoked turkey brine and step-by-step on how to, how to do that smoke on there. So you could go step-by-step on that recipe that's posted. I'm hoping to get some more posted. I'm a terrible writer. I'm a much better talker than I am uh, a writer. When I would see, like, at a college class, when it's uh, like, yeah, you have to write a paper at the end of the class, like, I knew this was not going to be a good deal. When it was a presentation, man, I didn't show up to the last day. So that's that's how I roll. Well, awesome, man. It, dude, I just, I mean, just myself learned a ton of information off of this. And, you know, I, I, I think it's important because... Um, a turkey, a wild turkey can be a very intimidating wild game animal that you do get. And a lot of people, I feel like, um, I don't want us to call it quitting, but they take the easy way out and they think they're like, oh, I'll just smoke this and make it in the jerky. When really there's a lot of great cuts of meat and ways to present and, uh, you know, prepare these, these birds to, to get everyone hooked on it and, you know, keep you in the woods going after it year to year. You took the time to pattern the shotgun. You took the time to find where the birds are at. You took the time to get out early, wake up your six-year-old by getting them ice cream so that they could come to the stand with you or the blind with you. And when you're finally able to put that bird down, that's when you call it quits. Right. Like, let's take it full circle. Like, we still have a job to do. Yes, to honor the animal, that that piece of creation, that animal that is fully that we want to have as a as a gift to us. But at the same time, when I come back to that and I, you know, I want to get the fan and you want to be able to have the the mementos, but like really sitting down with folks and talking about how you approach that bird and all the work that you put into approaching and getting to this bird to finish it out with and now i spent an extra 36 hours creating this delightful turkey thigh that that is how you end it that is how you finish strong that's a mic drop right there (laughs) (laughs) thanks nick for joining the podcast everyone and uh yeah as always thanks for listening